Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, could a tiny but uniquely deep lake just outside of Toronto serve as a big signpost in our planet's history? We find out what makes Crawford Lake such an important spot in determining whether we've entered a new epoch. The deaths of five people on board a submersible that is suspected of having imploded while making its way to the wreck of the Titanic is shining a real spotlight on so-called extreme tourism or adventure tourism and the big money people pay to venture to previously inaccessible parts of the planet. Has it gone too far and are people aware of the risks? They are one of the most successful and enduring Canadian rock bands, and Loverboy are back on tour this summer, this time with fellow classic rock icons, Foreigner. Frontman Mike Reno joins me to talk tunes, touring, and much more. But first, we head to Toronto, where voters have elected Olivia Chow as the city's new mayor. The former NDP MP and longtime Toronto City Councillor beat out a strong surge by former City Councillor Anna Bilal in the race to replace John Tory just months after scandal forced him out. Chow has made history in many ways, but the job ahead for her is a tough one. We find out why. To use some bad lover boy puns, Olivia Chow, it was the night for Olivia Chow, and she was clearly loving every minute of it as she gave her acceptance speech this evening. Picture this, eight months ago, John Tory, who had been mayor for two terms, rolled to victory, and it looked like another four years of status quo in Canada's biggest city. Then, all of a sudden, John Tory resigned amid a scandal, an affair with a younger staffer, and here we are, and Olivia Chow, an NDP MP for a long time, a city councillor, uh, the widow of the late Jack Layton, NDP leader, is now mayor-elect of Toronto. Um, she was overjoyed. You could tell just by watching uh, her, her accepted speech. Needless to say, here's a taste of what she had to say. Wow, what a night. <laughs> if you ever doubted what's possible together, if you, if you ever questioned your faith in a better future and what we can do with each other, for each other, tonight is your answer. Thank you to the people of Toronto for the trust you've placed in me and the mandate for change as your new mayor. And whether you voted for me or not, we're united in our love for this great city. There she is, Toronto's new mayor, mayor-elect Olivia Chow. Now, this turned into a much closer race than expected because she was well ahead in the polls for a long time here. And the battle was, well, who's the not Chow, the anybody but Chow candidate? And it, it essentially broke down tonight to former city councillor Anna Bailao, who was at one point ahead in the ahead in the vote count and she slipped behind a bit wound up losing but showed a very strong had a very strong showing in second place all the other candidates pulling below 10 percent so it really turned into a two-person race olivia chow becoming the 66th mayor of toronto by my count and the fifth mayor of the amalgamated city following mel lastman david miller rob ford and john tory the first woman uh the first woman of asian origin to be um to be a mayor as well so a night of history uh but there's a lot of work to be done this is not an enviable job necessarily because the list of things to do is very long jason chapman is executive producer at chorus six uh, chorus is 640 in Toronto and he joins me now. Uh, Jason, wow. I mean, this is what the polls predicted, but it was a lot closer than expected. And it's sort of what the polls predicted. Um, and I'd love to dig into 
how the race unfolded, what Olivia Chow means for mayor of Toronto and, and you know, for people across the country. But I, I'm just going to lament for a little bit right here. I, I'm so tired of uh, us using horse race polls um, in elections too early, Ben. Um, right. You know, uh, Olivia Chow is known across Canada as a, a woman who has uh, been a member of parliament. She's also a former trustee here in, in Toronto and uh, a former city councillor and a former mayoral candidate. Um, an, an incredible story of, of an immigrant from Hong Kong becoming the mayor of Toronto. What really is remarkable, the top three contenders tonight, Ben, all immigrants, Toronto finally starting to reflect itself at a municipal election level. Um, but we started publishing horse race polls in the media here in Toronto very early on in this race, this by-election called in February after uh, our former mayor, John Tory, announced he was having an affair, was stepping aside. Olivia Chow gets in the race and is, like I just mentioned, a familiar voice here. Um, but she hadn't laid out any policy, and we started leaning on a number of polls. And, you know, if you ask a, an average listener, an average Torontonian, an average Canadian, who they're going to vote for, well, what are they going to say, Ben? Oh, I know that. Well, they'll name. probably I say, know "I know that Chow. name." I know that, or right. they'll, or in her case, they may say, "There's no way I'm voting for that person because of her background." As you know, clearly identified as an as an NDP leaning candidate in a city where you've had right wing more right wing mayors now from Rob Ford and John Tory on. Yeah, only David Miller, really the most uh, only progressive mayor of the mega city of Toronto since its inception in the late '90s, or early 2000s. So you're right about that, Ben. But there's you know, we're talking about the widow of Jack Layton. And right. I'd love to pick your brain on this. Is Jack Layton elicits such a, there's such an emotional feel when you say his name still. Do you think Jack Layton still resonates as somebody who people across Canada say, man, I miss him. I wish he was still here. And in Toronto, that means I'd like to vote for somebody who's connected to Jack Layton. Rest his soul. I wonder. I mean, I covered a lot of Jack Layton campaigns alongside Olivia Chow. I mean, I remember them together. They were a formidable team, the two of them. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if he still resonates. There was that flash there where, where he sort of, you know, I don't know if he still does. I think, though, that there is a lot of respect out there in the political world for Olivia Chow period, that she was hardworking. She was always, you know, she always did her homework. I remember her as an MP as being very, very up on what she was doing. Whether you like her politics or not, whether you think she'll be good for the city of Toronto or not, that's a different, I mean, I'll leave that up to the voters of Toronto. And clearly tonight, a lot of voters out there rallied to Anna Bailao's side and thought, listen, we don't don't want Olivia Chow as our mayor. We'd rather somebody else. So it's going to be an interesting, I mean, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting to see. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think in many ways, uh, Toronto made history tonight. It would have made history whether Bailao or Chow won. Uh, but it's interesting that Olivia Chow won. I mean, she, you know, she is part of, of, of political nobility in this, in this country to some extent. And here she is as mayor of our biggest city. You're right about that. And Anna Bailao, uh, remarkably, Ben, one day on a Saturday, on a weekend, on 640 Toronto, hosted a radio show hosted a radio show for us we're, <laughs> we were did. using her as a, as a host and um she did a remarkable job and that was i, I think two weeks before the john tory announcement came out so i mean anna uh, uh, certainly has a political future in toronto there's no doubt in my mind after tonight capturing uh, just about i think it was about fifteen thousand. versus 20,000 fewer votes than Olivia Chow. There's no doubt that Anna Bailao has a, a, another run in her for the city of Toronto. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm so curious to see 
um, in two and a half years when we go to the polls here. I know that we've just elected a new mayor tonight, but we're only two and a half years away from another general election in this city, Ben. Um, and, and, and Anna Bailau is sort of the establishment candidate here in this city, somebody who is very familiar uh, with all the usual players. Um, so anyways, I, I'm getting ahead of myself on that front, but a, yeah. a very strong showing for her. Very strong. So what do you think made the difference this time for Olivia Chow? Because she ran against Rob Ford and lost uh, nine years ago now. And I think, I mean, Alan Carter on Global News was mentioning she'd been on their panel when John Tory steamrolled to victory again eight months comment? ago. Yeah, I mean, he, she, was on, he was on, she was on the panel, and he sort of felt, well, I guess that's that, right? I mean, you're probably not going to run again in four years, so I suppose that is the end of Olivia Chow's political career. And yet here she is tonight, eight months later. She's mayor of the city. So listen, um, not to get too far into the weeds, but the NDP recruited Olivia Chow to run in this election. I don't believe, I believe this, Ben. I, I, I could be proven wrong if Olivia Chow convinces me otherwise. Olivia Chow had no intention of being in this race. But the NDP saw an opportunity here to run a candidate and win with Olivia Chow. So what was the difference this time? Um, it's been a long time since we've had a, quote-unquote, progressive mayor in Toronto, somebody who would lean to the left. We're coming off of a lot of years of Rob Ford. And when I say Rob Ford's name, I know pretty much every Canadian remembers what Rob Ford meant to the city and the country. Then you're coming off of John Tory, another right-leaning candidate, uh, a sort of um, a red Tory, I suppose, but a guy who leaned more to the right. So I just think at this moment in time, the NDP saw an opportunity to run a candidate in a by-election. Let's be honest, it's a gorgeous summer night here in Toronto where most people were unengaged. And they used the NDP machine, Ben, to win this race because they mobilized their base. They mobilized and said, here is our opportunity to have a very left-leaning, left-of-center-leaning mayor in the office in Toronto. That's my thought. I still am not at – Olivia Chow is now 67, and I think that's still plenty young to be the mayor of a city. But she was months ago out of politics, Ben, and now here she is. So I, that's my guess anyways. I'll tell you, if you, you want my opinion, uh, if Olivia Chow gets in, it'll be unmitigated disaster. Uh, taxes are going to go up 25 to 30 percent when people can't afford the rent, can't afford mortgages now. Um, you know, businesses are going to be fleeing Toronto as far as I'm concerned. I'll tell you, I've talked to business communities, both myself and the previous mayor, uh, John Tory. People are terrified. Yeah, uh, that's Premier Doug Ford. Not tonight, by the way. He was much more gracious this evening about uh, congratulating Olivia Chow. But he was he was sounding uh, sounding the doom uh, uh, last week when talking about Olivia Chow. Uh, Jason Chapman is executive producer at Chorus of 640 in Toronto. Uh, Jason, these people have to work together now. And uh, Doug Ford was anything uh, was was unequivocal about his dis well his dislike. Certainly, his hope that Olivia Chow would not be winning the election tonight. And here she is. Ben, I mean, that clip still just is incredible to hear because it's just a week ago that it's going to be an unmitigated disaster if Olivia Chow went and here we are. Um, it's been funny, though. He's been oscillating between saying he'll work with anybody. <laughs> It'll be an unmitigated disaster. Listen, I laugh, but my fine city is in a disastrous situation, Ben, when it comes to finances. Um, I can give you all sorts of numbers, but let me just tell you this. The budget that was passed this year by city council, by former mayor, John Tory, will take our roads. There's not enough money in our budget right now, Ben, to keep our roads at the crummy state they're in right now. Those roads are going to get worse 
based on the budget that was passed. We are broke. We just found out today that we're not buying new subway trains for one right. of our or the second busiest line in our city. Uh, we are broke, and the, the taxation formula, I, I would argue, for cities across the country is broke then. But we are an aging city. Everything is, is in dire need of repair. A new um, uh, subway-like line that we're building, a light subway line that we're building, is just sitting, not being used because there's all sorts of construction issues with it. Uh, what's that going to mean? More money. And yeah, we yeah, need I mean, the I mean, provincial money to keep projects moving, to keep the city afloat. And yeah, bottom line, Olivia Chow and Ontario Premier Doug Ford are going to need to work together. Absolutely. And it's going to be interesting to watch because, I mean, and that's just one of the, I mean, I suppose that the base of the whole thing is money. But you look at affordability, safety, the TTC. I mean, there's a long list of issues. Uh, what was interesting about, about Olivia Chow's campaign, I thought, is that unlike some others, she didn't talk about the city being broke. And she sort of talked about her hope to fix things. And it was the same thing she was talking about tonight. I mean, a lot of it was a bit wishy-washy. There wasn't a lot of, wasn't a lot of, of meat on the bone there in her terms of let's all love each other and work together. But man, she that's... She She's inherited quite quite the mess. It's a disaster. Uh, I, I, I I really do mean that. Ben. the the budget that was just passed. It's still we still need to come up with a billion dollars to pay for the crummy budget that was passed. Um, yeah. And so I I mean uh, Olivia Chow addressed her her future relationship with Doug Ford, and if we can take a listen to what she had to say tonight, I mean let's judge whether or not there's a relationship sure. to be had here. Here's we Olivia Chow. We have that all end up for you. Now, speaking of working together, I said to Premier Ford, who graciously called me tonight, and, and his, and his um, minister, Steve Clark, called me, and he said, we look forward to working together. Yes. We look forward to finding common ground, right? Because I know we both believe in this people of this city. And yes, we both believe and we love this city. The people have sent a message today. They want to get things done. Yeah. Oh yeah, well, it, it's all the olive branches are, are being whipped around the city tonight, uh, Jason. But but. In reality, man, I, I wonder. It's going to be interesting because Doug Ford will know that those aren't his voters who elected the mayor tonight. So he's going to, I mean, there's politics going on here. We'll see. Well, and Doug Ford's man is a man named Mark Saunders. Mark Saunders former was Toronto's former police yep. chief. And he came third, but a distant, distant third. Um, and so you're right about that. Uh, Doug Ford's people did not vote for the mayor or the second place mayoral candidate. And but th- listen, this is the politics that are going to be played, and unfortunately, the people of Toronto are going to be caught in the middle. And and you said it in in Olivia Chow's acceptance speech tonight, victory speech tonight. A lot of airy fairy things like we're going to improve service on the TTC. Our service on the public transit system was just cut months ago because there's no money. Um, we're going to make more affordable housing. Well, I, I, honestly, Ben, I, I've talked to developers here that right now. The city of Toronto needs 300,000 additional affordable housing units today. That's today. And every year that goes by, we need an extra 50,000. The price tag for that 
is $20 billion. Uh, we don't have it. So a lot of lovely sentiments tonight about making our city more accommodating for people who were like Olivia Chow, who were immigrants to this city, who came here with nothing but still needed a place to live. And she's talking about building lots of new spaces for the half million new people who are going to move to Toronto over the coming years. Well, I'm not sure with what money, man. I'm really not. Well, Jason, I mean... We'll celebrate, you know, any time a, a politician wins, we can celebrate a new mayor. She broke, she broke some barriers tonight, which is great, but sure wow, what, what a job she has ahead. Jason Chapman, thank you as always. A pleasure, Ben. Thank you. We know who the next mayor of Toronto is going to be. What we still don't know is what's going on in Russia. I don't know. I mean, Friday night, we tried to figure out what was happening at the time. Evgeny uh, Prigozhin and his Wagner group, we don't know how many of his Wagner uh, militia were marching towards, or they were in Rostov, which is not far from the Ukrainian border, down in the deep south there, not too far from uh, from the Ukrainian border where Mariupol is. And they were sort of starting to head north along the M4 towards Moscow. And people were like, what's going on here? Someone's marching on Moscow. Um you know, is Russia imploding? Well, by Saturday, this whole thing had ended. And uh, the announcement came, Prigozhin, essentially, the deal was announced, apparently brokered by Belarusian President uh, Alexander Lukashenko, which is odd in of itself. But the whole thing stopped, and then it just went away. And everyone around the world, and I follow lots of Russia watchers on social media, everyone had their own hot take, and everyone was confused about exactly what had happened, why it had happened, and what did it all mean. So you can get opinions from across the spectrum of what happens next year. Now, uh, it sort of quieted down on Sunday. Everyone was laying low. Today, both Prigozhin and uh, Vladimir Putin both spoke. So we got a better idea of where things sit. And apparently they sit not far from where they sat on Friday. Putin thanked his country's military for holding firm. Uh, he claimed he had given the orders to avoid bloodshed during the mutiny, um, again, led by Prigozhin and, and his Wagner private military company. And uh, meanwhile, he, uh, Prigozhin came out and basically put out another kind of boastful audio statement saying that um, that it was the senior Russian military that he was really out to oust, that he doesn't trust them, and that uh, he wasn't trying to overthrow Vladimir Putin. He really just wanted to get rid of the defense minister, <clears throat> Sergei Shoigu, and, uh, and the head of the military. Now, none of that has happened. So where are we tonight? Well, apparently... Prigozhin, leader of said militia, has now been exiled to Belarus. We don't know what he's going to do there. Uh, the Wagner militia have been offered an opportunity to join, uh, to sort of sign up and be, be commanded. I think they're always kind of commanded, but to be officially taken in by the Russian military. Um, and the rest of the world sort of watching, trying to figure out what exactly has happened here. Now, the prime minister, Justin Trudeau, was uh, joined by, he was joining Nordic leaders today in Iceland. And they, of course, said they had some serious conversations about this um, and called them internal challenges that Russia has faced in recent days. I think everyone has a lot of questions about what this actually means, uh, but we don't yet have a lot of answers. And uh, too much speculation right now, uh, I think, could probably be uh, extremely counterproductive. Ah, but speculation is what we do best, isn't it? I mean, what is going on? Is Vladimir Putin weakened by all this? Is this had an impact? Are they circling? The, are they, you know, are they, are they, are they the, you know, I was trying to think of the right analogy here, but are the vultures circling more or less, or are they not? Is this just a blip that will go away? It certainly felt momentous. So I thought I'd go reach out to someone who watches this stuff very closely. Ian Garner is a Russia media watcher and author of Z Generation, Into the Heart of Russia's Fascist Youth. And he joins me now. Ian, thanks for your time. Welcome back. 
Hi, thank you for having me in this very bewildering time. It is. I mean, we're hearing from both Prigozhin and Putin today. Uh, and if anyone was hoping that either of them would clear things up, uh, I guess they've they haven't. I mean, they haven't moved as much further ahead than we were Saturday. Well, if we thought on Saturday evening that Prigozhin might just slink off to Belarus quietly and Putin might forgive, forget and try and brush the whole thing under the carpet, then we were misinformed because Putin has just made a pretty dull but confrontational speech in which he said he's going to punish traitors, although he will also leave the Wagner soldiers to go to Belarus. And Prigozhin earlier today released his own confrontational video featuring his own fiery style in which he claimed that the mutiny wasn't a mutiny at all and doesn't really seem to be uh, going off into the night in silence. When one looks at it, I mean, it's very hard to make a lot of sense about what's happened because there have been so many things, uh, you know, to see any army uh, march on Moscow is is in of itself jaw-dropping. And then here we are, then, then it stops, and the war of words continue, and it feels like there's sort of this battle going on for a narrative about who exactly is in the right here, Prigozhin as, you know, fighting against the corruption and the incompetence, or Putin, you know, fighting to protect the fatherland. It, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting battle. Well, I mean, this is a continuation of the war of words between Prigozhin and the Ministry of Defense that has been going on for months already. They have been at each other's throats. Prigozhin has accused the Ministry of Defense of all sorts of crimes, of being traitors, of holding back ammunition from the front, even of attacking Wagner soldiers. The Ministry of Defense have been a little less combative in their language, but haven't exactly held back. So all of this dirty laundry has been aired in public, and it doesn't look like they're going to stop anytime soon. What is then, in your best estimation, what exactly is going on? Because there have been a lot of theories that, um, you know, the, the defense ministry was was looking to to sort of not disband, but they were looking to sort of neuter Prigozhin at this point and, and have clearly failed in doing that at least. Well, well, I'll let you I'll let you say what is going on. I suspect that things came to a head a couple of weeks ago when the defense ministry announced they were going to force all Wagner private contractors to sign contracts with the state. And that means their loyalty, their paycheck ultimately would not come from Prigozhin, it would come from Putin and the minister Shoigu. Prigozhin was not having any of that. He saw that his power such as it was might be about to evaporate and he had to do something. He was backed into a corner. Exactly what he was trying to do at the weekend, we don't know. But I think what we can say is that the 20,000 plus Wagner soldiers that have been at the Ukraine front did not come out to support Prigozhin. Prigozhin is being bundled off somewhere. He is no longer at the gates of Moscow. And so although Putin is weakened, we don't know internally what the debates are like, but certainly his image has been dented. Putin has ultimately come out of this the victor, and certainly the defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, whose position might have been in question a few days ago or a couple of weeks ago, he looks like a man in a pretty solid place right now. Yeah, he certainly didn't resign, right? I mean, the leadership is still the leadership at the Kremlin, and Prigozhin's off in Belarus, where he's been, I suppose, exiled, which is in of itself to see Lukashenko come out as the, the you know, the, the, the head of Belarus come out and sort of negotiate something. It was all very 
I mean, it was all very, it, it was like something out of some sort of surreal movie over the weekend. Well, the, the twist in the plot with Lukashenko, the president of Belarus, making the deal to end this standoff outside of Moscow was the most absurd thing that you can imagine. If you're not familiar with the politics, Belarus is usually painted as a, a little brother to Russia. Lukashenko is often derided as this somewhat provincial, stupid old grandfather figure who spends his days digging up potatoes in the field in this sort of Soviet-preserved wonderland that is Belarus. And then he comes in and, and effectively seems to save Russia. If anyone has won out of all of this, it is Lukashenko. Obviously, there's been a lot of speculation going on. I mean, everyone's warning against speculating too much, but clearly across Europe, all the European capitals here in North America, everyone's trying to read the tea leaves here and figure out exactly what's happened here. What should we do? What shouldn't we make of this, do you think? This is not the start of a Russian civil war. We didn't see any army or other power structures changing allegiance, coming out against Putin or even fighting Prigozhin. We didn't see a liberal opposition or a popular front coming out onto the streets to bat for one side or the other. This, in some senses, still seems to be quite an isolated conflict, essentially between elite factions. Something that could have happened in yesteryear without anyone really noticing if it weren't for social media and uh, and, and the ability for someone like Prigozhin to, uh, to release his own statements independently of anything else. I guess what we noticed is just how fluid the information environment is at times as well. Well, getting access to information has been like trying to wade through a pool of jelly over the last few days. And both sides know this. Both sides consistently not just in the last few days, but for months, have been lying, lying for their own end, deliberately misleading the other side, misleading us. Prigozhin is a master of this. What he gets and his innovation amongst these elite power struggles that have gone on for a long time in Russia is that he can speak directly to the public through social media. And that's how, if he's going to preserve his power base. That's how he's going to do it in the future, because clearly the money and the resources that were coming from the Kremlin to Wagner before, they are presumably not going to be coming, at least not coming through Prigozhin in the future. So in many ways, this is this is a battle of, I mean, they, these are all people who knew each other back in St. Petersburg in the wild days of the 90s. I mean, this is like, this is like something out of out of a out of a Godfather movie to some extent. I mean, I know it sounds like a ridiculous comparison, but these are all people who know each other, created each other, essentially. It is. And, and it's unexpected in the way that it played out, but it's not unexpected that these were the players in it. There is nobody riding in from the sidelines, no character that's popping up that suddenly seems to have accumulated power. Lots of analysts have been floating the idea that Prigozhin was getting too powerful, that he might even attempt a coup. We still don't know whether he really did, of course, at the weekend. But all of this is within the realms of the believable even if it tips into the realms of the absurd. Ian Garner is a Russian media watcher and author of Z Generation into the Heart of Russia's Fascist Youth. We're trying to figure out what's going on in Russia these days. And uh, Ian's had has a lot of insight into that. So what to look for 
now you you apparently have Prigozhin in Minsk, which creates a new wrinkle in all of this. With apparently he's his some of his forces are allowed to be there with him. We don't know if that's true or not. Putin seems to be defiant, but didn't seem to reassure anyone about his grip on things today. Uh, he was angry <laughs> clearly. So it, it's where to now? What are you going to be looking for in the next uh, in the next days and weeks? In terms of Prigozhin, the big question that we have no idea of the answer to is how many Wagner men are going with him to Belarus? Indeed, how many with, went with him to Moscow in the first place? We don't know. We don't have a good assessment of that, and we don't know how realistic his fighting force was. But if he is in Belarus with a large number of disaffected, angry men who have a grudge against the Putin regime? Will Putin let him sit quietly over there and live out his days in some villa outside of Minsk? Well, I very strongly doubt that. What is Putin going to do? We just don't know yet. Is there going to be a draconian backlash? Or is he just going to let this slide, move on, try to reassert control over the narrative, paint himself as a strong leader, and drum up all the, the angst and anger and direct it back towards Ukraine and the Ukrainian war. What I found interesting about Prigozhin's, um, you know, what he had to say specifically late last week was this idea that he called into question the very justification for the war, talking about elites pillaging, you know, the Donbass and wanting to pillage the whole of Ukraine, uh, talking about their incompetence. He spoke some some hard truths, <laughs> so to speak. I mean, I don't know if it's all true, but he spoke, uh, he, he certainly went against the popular narrative that the Kremlin's been spinning now for 16 months. Absolutely. This is a really good example of the way that Prigozhin manipulates reality and manipulates truth in order to position himself. So by saying those things, you know, he was he was doing it to deliberately poke at the bear, to poke the Kremlin and say, listen, I'm I'm about to do things. I am ready to do things that you are not going to like very much. But that's the first time he said anything like that. He has been the one leading a campaign of barbarism and violence, a campaign that not just justifies, but actually applauds war crimes committed against Ukrainians and in other theatres where Wagner has been active over the last decade. So he takes this little snippet and thinks this is going to be useful. I will scream it through my social media channels, knowing that it's going to go viral, knowing that I'm going to get attention, knowing that some on the, the liberal opposition side will suddenly feel a new affinity for me, and then I will march on Moscow. And there is quite a big leap from that statement to the march on Moscow. I, I suppose we should all keep in mind there, you know, sitting over where we're sitting, there are no heroes in this one, right? I mean, uh, a Prigozhin is hardly someone you'd cheer for uh, when it comes to, you know, what comes if, you know, about about what's happening within Russia's borders. Prigozhin is not the person you should be backing here. No, I mean, this is this is a movie with no heroes at all. They are all bad guys. And what has been very interesting to see over the last few days is the relative silence of any liberal democratic opposition in Russia who don't seem ready to, to run to the barricades and throw their own hat into this fight and somehow force Putin out of power off the back of Prigozhin's march. Instead, there was, there was pretty much silence. Yeah, the only telling thing was was some getting on their planes and getting out of town. That was that was kind of that was kind of telling. I suppose they people were just like, let them fight. We're not going to get involved in this. 
again, this is the activity from the elites, from the wealthy who are able to kind of stand above the fray in this regard. If you've got a private jet, if you've got the money to get out of town, off you go, keep yourself safe. But the mass of the population seem to do very little. When you look at the the impact of the optics of Prigozhin being able to march the way he did, and we we don't know exactly how far he got or how many people supported him. Clearly, he turned around. But if you look at the optics of it, does it does it now have others in and around? I mean, I'm sure everyone there must be an awful lot of power struggles that go on behind the scenes. Are others going to be sizing up their chances of taking down Putin in this way? Well, certainly, if I was some rebellious general and I had a group of men behind me and I thought I could get to Moscow pretty quickly and I could maybe get some of the security services, some of the defenders of Moscow who were stationed there to perhaps come over to my side, then what seemed impossible a few days ago now seems realistic, if not easy. Perhaps the toughest question to answer as we sit here in June of 2023, the end of June 2023, you know, 16 months into the war in Ukraine, this, you know, the further war in Ukraine. Uh, what to make of Russia now, though? What to make of a country that has that has these battles going on, this war that it's losing, really uh, a, a leader that seems weakened by this, a hollowing out in some senses. It's hard to make sense of it from afar. What we are seeing are the ramifications of Putin's decision to send his troops into Crimea and the east of Ukraine in 2014, when the assumption was that Ukraine would roll over, Ukraine would be controllable. The assumption again in 2022 was that Ukraine would give up and that Russia was far stronger and far more capable. Time and time again, Putin has been proven wrong. And this is the time when, if Putin were a wiser man, he would back down in Ukraine and fix his domestic problems. I expect he will not do that. And I expect, therefore, these problems are going to run and run in some form or another. Well, Ian, as always, thank you for your unique insight into this. Thank you for having me. Oh, lover boy. Wow. So this is a personal one for me, and I'll explain why. Uh, and there's a couple there's a couple of different stories here. So all the way back in 1982, uh, my mom was living in Toronto, and I had a chance to do some reporting, as only a you know 11 year old can do at the time, for a show called Anybody Home, which ran on the CBC. It was a kids show. The kids did the reporting. The kids, I believe, did the hosting. It was produced by adults, obviously. Um, but my first assignment, so to speak, ever was to go to Maple Leaf Gardens. I lived in Montreal at the time. Go to Maple Leaf Gardens and review a show by the most, the hottest rock band in Canada at the time, Loverboy. They had just come off Turn Me Loose, The Kid Is Hot Tonight, and then had some huge hits with Working for the Weekend and so on in the U.S. So they were hot. And the opening act was none other than a young man named Brian Adams, who is uh, awesome. I remember just being blown away by how good he was as well. So it was a big night for me. And I put together this little story. It was, you know, it was, wasn't particularly good or insightful, but it aired. Uh, they had to slow my voice down because even then I talked too fast. And behind it, behind the whole thing is Turn Me Loose, <laughs> is, is, is that song. Um, so this goes all the way back to 1982. Here we are 41 years later, and I'm still talking too fast. I'm still here on the radio. So there's, a, there's this kind of this, this interesting 
meeting between the first ever radio report I ever did. And here we are today, right? 41 years later, the, uh, you know, the symmetry of it, so to speak. Right. But I've always been, so I've always had a soft spot for lover boy, right? I don't have it listened to it all the time. I don't listen to lover boy all that often even, but I do always enjoy lover boy songs. Now, of course it was an awesome night for me at that age. You know, I remember I, you know, if I think back to concerts in 1982, I could still smell the cigarette and, and, you know, the other smoke that was, you know, puffing around in there. This was a different era altogether, right? Back in 1982. I've interviewed Brian Adams a few times since. I, I actually met him in person back in London when uh, he was doing something around his photography, which of course is exceptional. And I mentioned this story to him and he gave me a hard time for making him feel old. <laughs> so I'm like, maybe I won't bring it up. Maybe I won't bring it up again, that this was sort of a, you know, a big moment in my little young life at the time. Um, so as I mentioned, it, it, it takes me, it's a personal story for me as well when it comes to, comes to Loverboy. Um, so here we are again, 41 years later. And, uh, if you were, you'd be forgiven if you looked at Loverboy's tour schedule for this summer and thinking it was, in fact, 1982, because last summer they did a whole load of dates right across North America with Styx and REO's Speedwagon, two other blasts from the past, but uh, bands that were huge about the same time that Loverboy was knowing its greatest successes. And this summer, promoters came calling again, proposing a similar tour at similar places, this time with legendary rock band Foreigner. So they're back on the road again this summer. Uh, they'll be in Toronto. That's the only Canadian date right now, is Toronto on July the 25th. Uh, for Foreigner, this is a final tour, apparently, that promises to continue into 2024, while for Loverboy, they have no plans of... Uh, uh, packing up the bandanas and the power ballads just yet. I had a chance earlier to speak with Mike Reno, lead singer of Loverboy, and I, of course, began by thanking him. You know what? I'm just starting to become aware of the fact that I play probably way too many concerts, but I have so much fun, I don't mind doing it. So tell me about this year. Uh, your your uh, Last year was Stick Scenario Speedwagon. This year it's Foreigner. I mean, this is like a, a Hall of Fame tours that you've been doing, including Loverboy, obviously. I think it's a love affair with, I think, yeah. We've got a good uh, in with live nations. I don't know. They just love us. So, every, you know, every time we decide, uh, you know, maybe we'll do another tour. I don't know. They come up with this great offer of uh, how about we do another tour in all those same 20,000 seat outdoor amphitheaters. And, you know, we're so lucky. I mean, I can't even believe how lucky we are to be able to do that. Right. It is. I mean, it's it's. You, I heard you in an interview once say that you still get to play whenever you want. And, and I mean, for any band. That's the gift, right? You get to kind of decide what you want to do, where and when. It's ridiculous. I don't know. We must have done, just with the uh, Six and the REO boys, we must have done 62 concerts last year. And back in the tour buses after all these years, and uh, we, we, you know, we took our bikes with us. You know, we, we picked up bikes off Craigslist when we were in Atlanta. We get a roadie to run over and pick it up. And we did that all summer. And I figured, wow, that was fun. We never thought we'd get another offer like that, but boom. It happened. I, I can't picture Loverboy biking around, you know, Toronto in 1982. But that's not, it's, with age comes wisdom, right, Mike? With age comes wisdom. I know what you're thinking, and I think the same thing every day. But I tell you what, the oldest guy in the band is like the Energizer Bunny. He just bombs around. He does all kinds of things. He, he puts on 40, 50 miles a day on his pedal bike. So to have the bikes is a real little bit of freedom out there. And, you know, we just find a place to go, a cool place, go down the river, go to a restaurant, go shopping. It's it's kind of like a fun thing to do. I mean, I, I think it's the perfect job. 
it sounds like do, are, do do people ever sort of turn their heads and say, "Wait a second, I think that's Loverboy on those bikes." We get it all the time, but the the helmet helps. When, when you got the helmet on, people don't really recognize it. Now, if I was to walk around with my red headband, that'd be a whole right. different story. I, I try not to do that, Ben. We're going to have to get you a custom made helmet that looks like the red headband. I mean, that's that's what it boils down to. <laughs> hey, there's what? an idea. It's early. Uh, tell me about I mean, a bit about the crowds, because I'll tell you. So when I first started the show, uh, the technical producer who was born in the 90s, every Friday night, she plays Working for the Weekend. And I thought, wow, wow, what an enduring, you know, a whole generation that weren't around when, when those songs were first popular still glom onto them. And I can imagine when you look out over the crowd at any of your concerts these days, you see a lot of different age groups. You know, first of all, you have to thank her for me for doing that. You know what it is? For, it, so songs seem to just kind of cross all the age barriers. And a lot of people use them in uh, the songs in movies. A lot of people uh, play them every Friday night. A lot of people play them every night. And it's not just around here. It's everywhere, which is the cool thing. You know, we were lucky to get international success. And with that, it becomes the, the, the notoriety, and which is awesome. A song like Working for the Weekend is just all it is is fun. And... You always know it's going to start because you hear the cowbell. It's kind yeah. of the perfect written song. I mean, I can say that after all these years. It just seems to fit in all formats, and everybody has fun with it. And when we walk out on the concert uh, stage, I basically hold my hands up like up in the air and just go, oh, my God, what are we all doing here? And everybody just stands up and starts applauding and laughing. And it's the songs. It's you know, the only reason they're coming is because the, the songs that they grew up with, the songs, they went to high school with the songs, they went to college with the songs and university. And it just reminds them of a, a great time in their lives. And, you know, the young years are basically when everybody has a really great time and those songs are attached to it. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I, I look, I remember the first time I heard Turn Me Loose on the radio. And I was one of those, I was maybe nine, listening to American Top 40, which I did religiously. And all of a sudden they said, here's this band from Canada. And I don't think I'd heard a lot of Canadian bands on the charts. And all of a sudden it's the opening of that song. I thought, oh my God, what is this? <laughs> this is great. Uh, and I think a lot of people felt that way. It was such confident, polished power rock from Canada. And I think a lot of us were really proud of that. And a lot of it was because of Dick Clark. He he called us and said, we want you on American Bandstand. Right. I remember I said to myself, this is a life-changing moment. And it turned out to be a life-changing moment. And he became a friend of ours. He asked us to do uh, a lot of things for uh, American Music Awards and things like that that he was involved with. And his company still involved with. So you got to put the work in, but you also have to have a bit of luck uh, in this business. We were willing to do the work. And we had a lot of luck. And, you know, I guess everything just kind of played out perfectly. Take me back back then. You know, I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to do what everyone does to you, Mike, which is I'm going to tell you the first time I saw Loverboy. And I couldn't remember the date because I was actually assigned to do a radio piece. My mom was a radio producer and they had this kid show on CBC and they said, you're going to Maple Leaf Gardens to see Loverboy and Brian Adams. And I went there with my little tape recorder and I, we didn't interview you but I did a review of the concert that was the first thing I ever did and it opens with the with the opening keyboard riff of uh, Turn Me Loose so that's when I first saw you so of course you kind of kicked off my career too you know what that's a fabulous story and we did uh, Maple Leaf Gardens was a, a big deal for us I mean yeah. and I think we recorded a lot of that stuff and we actually are putting out a DVD composite of uh, of that year that whole tour it just takes you right back. The clothes, the hairstyles, the everything. 
Maple Leaf Gardens was a huge big deal for us. And uh, I think it would be for anybody. It's the uh, the pinnacle in Canada to, to play there. You know, we, we were there and Brian, we were, I remember Brian Adams was, uh, was uh, actually, he was doing a warm up set for us, which was yeah. great. And Brian Adams was attached to uh, Bruce Allen talent as well as Loverboy. Loverboy got signed first. Brian Adams was like the next guy to come up the ladder. What a tour that was! Can you imagine seeing uh, Brian Adams and Loverboy all together at the same time? Oh, it was time? great! It was great. I mean, <laughs> yeah, if but- you didn't, if you didn't love Canadian, if you didn't think Canadian rock had its place in this, in in the in the broader scheme of things, you did that night. So uh, uh, there's origin stories of the band. I know the Coverboy versus Loverboy story is a great one, but you become Loverboy. Tell me about about opening for Kiss because I gather that's good. Opening for Kiss is one of those origin stories it's like it's like the first spider-man or something it's a great story i'll tell you what when we opened for kiss we hadn't really even done a professional recording we'd done some demos just to to hear how the song sounded you know on tape and then we got a call from bruce who was decided he'd handle us and he said reno get the guys together you're playing tonight and i said playing where we don't even have a bass player he goes you're playing the coliseum warming up kiss and i just went what in vancouver the old rink yeah yeah where the canucks played yeah and uh, i guess the reason was uh the new york dolls weren't allowed in the country and this was actually i think it's 79 and kiss were big usually bands that play with kiss usually get kind of booted up booed or booted off the stage or pelted with stuff they actually listened to our whole set and uh, we got quite a nice response however I was so nervous, I barely remember the concert itself, but I do remember meeting the guys in Kiss, and it was pretty cool. And to this day, I'm still friends with Gene. It's kind of a cool relationship, really. What I always remember of Loverboy, of you, of Loverboy, of the band, and every band needs a good front, needs a confident front man, right? Like, or a confident front person, I should say, was that although it seemed, it seemed to happen so fast, even if you were my age and watching it from, you know, from a child's point of view, or a younger child's point of view, that... You you were so confident. You you appeared so confident, despite the fact that you ended up on, you know very quickly on the road with bands like Kansas and ZZ Top, and you opened for Kiss, and you were at JFK. And, you know these were huge concerts, and it must have been terrifying. But you just went with it, and it looked like you knew exactly what you were doing, and that's that's the gift, right? You know what? I don't know how I do it. I, I side stage uh, before the concert, like you know, even a minute before the concert, I feel almost uh, deathly sick. I have really bad stage fright. And even to this day, and it appears to be getting worse. But as soon as that light hits me in the face and everything comes on and I hear the opening number musically, I just somehow jump to it. And I, I don't know how I do it. And I'd love to find out how I do it. But it's just this confidence. I come out and I just have to do it. I just, you know, you're up there. The light's shining on you. You got to go for it. And maybe that's a good old fashioned Canadian thing. I don't know. I just jump out there and try to take charge, get everybody yeah. into it. We were doing a thing, three profits or states over. And we got called. Somehow they said, we got to turn this thing around and deadhead back like overnight, get to JFK Stadium. You're on at three o'clock in the afternoon. And we got there just in time, basically to, to kind of rinse our hairs with a, a hose and a tap. The equipment got set up really fast. We basically didn't have a sound check or anything. We walked out and there was 100,000 people staring at us. And so we once again kicked into the confidence thing (laughs) and uh, we just rocked it. And we rocked it so hard that day that all the other bands that were there, including the Kinks, 
uh, Foreigner were back then, and uh, a bunch of other bands. You know, they Is all Hyde, I think the Pretenders were yeah, there. All, yeah, who, who, oh, the Pretenders were there. Yes, uh, maybe that's how they got together to begin with. Yeah, because uh, they were dead for that's a, a while. Good, that's that's a good theory. That's right, Ray Davies and Chrissy Hyde, of course. And I looked over to the side of the stage, and right there was all the bands that were on the bill, and they must have come out of their dressing rooms. We had the crowd standing on their tiptoes. And Paul and I used to do a thing where we take 50% of the audience, this is my side, and the other 50% of the audience is Paul's side. And I would say something to the audience that would get the other side of the audience enraged. And then Paul would do the same thing with my side. And we kind of fight back and forth. So this crowd of 100,000 people were on their tiptoes just going for it. And I imagine if you were in the dressing room, they would have gone, who the hell are these guys? <laughs> who, are these kids? who are these kids? Yeah. And so they came out of their dressing rooms. I looked side stage and I saw that's what really made me nervous. I looked over and I saw all these other bands who I'd idolized all my life watching us. And I kind of went, wow, this is a pretty exciting thing we're doing here. I mean, I'll never forget it. Like MTV, like eight, Get Lucky comes out. I remember it vividly because there was a lot of a lot of anticipation for that record, and working for the weekends. I believe the lead single at the time, if I'm if my memory is correct, and then and then a little later there's some MTV stuff. Like you were really, I mean, there was it was it felt like a pretty slick operation by then. I, I'm not sure it was inside, but from the outside, it felt like you really hit your groove uh, by '82. Well, let me just tell you something. In 1980. We got asked to go to Albany, New York, to I think it was the Shrine Theater. And when we got there, there'd be a bunch of TV cameras set up and they want to video us playing live because they're going to put together a live performance mix with some uh, additional footage. And we're going to send it to a new company that's offering our uh, music uh, shows. MTV was starting up and... We sent them, we, we worked all weekend and recorded three, which were now called videos, and we sent them to MP, MTV at a time, in the first week they opened, at a time when they needed 24-hour uh, content. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of bands that had done this. So all day and all night, every day, until the point where we couldn't even go to the 7-Eleven buy a newspaper. We had to stay in our rooms and stay backstage. We, it really did change our lives. MTV changed a lot for a lot of people, and uh, it's pretty cool. Uh, as a matter of fact, I play golf with the guy who started MTV um, back in the day. I've tried to remember those. I mean, I remember the video for "Turn Me Loose." I certainly remember the video for uh, for for working for the for loving every minute of it. I'm trying to remember the video for for uh, working for the weekend, but that might have been a bit after. That was a big time for the band, though. I mean. Wow, there's a great story because I, I always think back to when you did the duet with Ann Wilson. And I gather you knew the Wilson sisters from Vancouver because Hart spent time in Vancouver. There's a really good story behind how that track got cut because I think it was the first time I saw your name apart from Loverboy. Uh, and it was on the Footloose soundtrack and it was a massive success. And I think people still love that track. Uh, but there's a really cool story be between behind how it worked out. Well, it was one of those things that we were on tour and had a day off. And Hart were on tour and edited First of all, I want to tell you, I was given the choice to sing that song with anybody I wanted to. So I, I immediately, without even thinking, I picked uh, Ann Wilson. Well, that's before I met my wife, Catherine St. Germain, I might add. But <laughs> <laughs> Ann Wilson was uh, a fantastic singer. For, and all I ever remember is going to see uh, uh, Hart when they lived in Vancouver for 11 years or so. I used to come down from the Okanagan where I lived at the time uh, just to catch some heart. 
shows and they were like the big Led Zeppelin band and they had all this great stuff and they were great singers. So I've always been a big fan of, of the Heart Sisters and the band and Anne was my choice. And they were on tour and we were on tour. So we, were, we decided to do the song in Chicago and we had the producer, Keith Olson, uh, meet us there and he had the bed track together, music track. And uh, I was there and we kind of had to wait a little while for Anne. Either she got lost or she wasn't in town at the time. I don't know. Anyway, she she showed up a few hours later. We were going to cancel the whole uh, recording session. And, and then finally she walked in and I went, oh, my God, this is awesome. And really, I just wanted to get to know her a little bit because I hadn't really met her. So I asked the guys to close the curtain to the control room and we, we could just sit and talk. And I asked her if she wanted a beer or anything, because, you know, it's true Canadian. You got to ask if somebody wants a beer yeah. and just to calm everybody down. And after we talked for about half an hour and just got to know each other a little bit, we were sitting. I said, do you know the song? And she says, absolutely. I, I know it. So I said, let's do it. So I told, asked Keith to run the, run the track. And we both stood up and we sang it in the same microphone. It was a one-time deal. And Keith Olsen just puts his hands in the air and goes, thank you. That's it. And, that'll be all. <laughs> and that was a you know beautiful moment. I mean, it really, there's some real magic on that track. Absolutely. There, there is. And I remember at the time, you know, reading about stories where people were doing duets without ever meeting each other. You know, someone would send in the track from LA and someone would send in the track from New York and they would just be mixed. So I think part of the special, uh, the specialness of that song is that it, you hear that, you hear that you're in the same room singing together. Right. Yeah. Um, well, you think about people, how they would do it, different microphones. Sometimes, even today, nowadays, people do it they're, they're in different cities. But for us to just stand up and look at each other and sing in the same mic, that to me, even at the time, was magic. I just kind of went, wow, that was cool. Like, I just kind of wondered, do we really have to do that again? But he just, he also <laughs> just said, you got it, you guys. Fantastic. Thank you. Got it in one. Did you like singing the ballads? I mean, I always remember there was back, you know, in the 80s, there was a bit of a formula. There'd be a fast track would be your first release. There'd usually be a ballad as the second or third release. And, you know, you had lots of great ballads. The ballads were the big hits, too. Uh, did you like singing the ballads? Was it was that uh, was that a challenge? Uh, well, you know what? The ballad was was a challenge because uh, even though I thought the song was a fantastic song, I had a little discussion with Paul and Paul thought that if I sang a soft song like that, it was really going to kill our career because really? he wanted it to be really hard and really hard, you know, crunchy and, and fast and exciting. And I said, yeah, Paul, I guess the only thing I wanted to talk to Paul about is I just said, Paul, because we, we discussed everything, Paul and I, we started the band and we talked about everything. And he said, I don't really want, I don't think you should do this. And I said, I'll tell you what, Paul, if this song and this movie just disappear, then it's just gone and nobody cares. Nobody will hear it. doesn't matter. I said, but if it's a hit movie, it's got to be good for Loverboy's career because I'm the singer of Loverboy. I mean, come on. And as it turned out, after it became a big one, I think it sold like 20 million records. Oh, it was huge. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was crazy. Paul just said, well, maybe we should put a big ballad on our next album. So I kind of think it turned him around a little bit, you know? You're right. There aren't yeah. a lot of ballads on the. I mean, I mean, uh, when it's over, I guess is sort of a ballad, but not really. Uh, I guess yeah. You, yeah, that was a bit of a shift there. I never thought of that. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. You were you were right. You were right. Yeah. Well, I was trying to think. I just figured it, with logic is if it if it's a nothing uh, movie, it's just going to disappear and it won't even matter. So who cares? 
And then if it's huge, it's going to matter. And people are going to go, that's the guy from Loverboy. So I think I just said it's a win-win if you ask me. And you like singing them. Like, I mean, it was a bit of a switch in, in for vocals. I don't know how, I'm not a singer, so I don't know. But it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a chance for you too, because people didn't know that side of your vocal range as well. Well, that's true. Actually, I learned a lot from that myself. You know, it was really fun singing it. I had a, I had a real blast singing it. And, you know, we still do it today sometimes. If yeah. My wife's up this because she sings uh, with me all the time. Mm-hmm. And she's actually the singer in the family. I'm just the guy who became famous. <laughs> It's a good way. It's a great way to put it. What I was thinking back to was in the early 80s, you know, there was a lot of navel gazing around rock, right? You know, a lot of critics and dissecting of what this meant. And here we are 43 years later. And the songs that still really resonate, and I think a BTO and I think a Loverboy are songs that make people feel good. And it's amazing how those songs have endured when so many critics favorites from the from the era kind of faded away. Absolutely. You know what, Ben? It's all about feeling good and taking people to a happy place. We, we play most of these songs in our set. We've done videos for, and people relate the video to the, the, to the songs, to the time in their life. And it's a little triangular thing where they go, Oh my God. And they look at and people and all the friends and go, do you remember when we were in grade 12 or grade seven or whatever? And I think it's an honor really to take people to a happy place in a world that just seems to be so off balance right now you know so people can just go right to a place for like a couple of hours when we play concerts you don't have to worry about the kids you don't have to worry about this the next thing you don't have to worry about what happened next week or who got shot it's just fun it's a fun time and it's a great place to be and i i can't wait to do it and you, and you will be doing it again soon. I mean, that that part of it, the longevity, the enduring nature of the tracks is what I find so interesting. Because again, you know, people always look at pop music, and you know, it's you know, in in in, in a way that isn't always even back, especially back in the early '80s, that wasn't necessarily overly enthusiastic. And yet, you know, it's those songs that endured. And I guess that's what really. Uh, do you have a Do you have a favorite? I mean, you must have sung all these songs thousands thousands of times. Do you have one that you still really love to sing? Well, I love to sing "Working for the Weekend." We usually play it towards the end of the set, and it's it's just everybody jumps right up. You can feel the energy from the audience, and we're playing for some big audiences here this last few years. Mm-hmm. But my favorite song to sing, to be honest with you, is "When It's Over." I just, that's like one of that's a real singer's type song, and it means a lot to me. The lyrics and the song itself uh, is kind of a special thing. And you know, everyone has a favorite song, a favorite lover boy song. Well, my favorite Level Boy song is When It's Over, but Working for the Weekend's got to be the big hit. It's funny you mentioned that. I, I actually listened to When It's Over last night because I remember it being my favorite track at the time because it's such a great song. Oh, cool. well, we got, yeah, we got it, something in common here, Ben. Yeah, it's such, it's such a great song. So this summer, uh, tell, what's it like to be out with Foreigner? I mean, I know I know you know a lot of these bands as friends now too, right? Some of the bands, Sticks, Ario Speedwagon, you did a really cool Zoom video when you announced that tour. Um, it, it must be... It must be like a band of brothers at this point, or a band of people, I should say. I got to be honest with you. I, I'll really miss the boys in REO Speedwagon and Sticks. We became really tight. We, we really did. We played a lot of concerts last year because we were out for four, four and a half months. And concert tours nowadays, the way you, you play a show and then you move to the next town and you meet, you set up, or they set up the gear, then you do a little sound check, then you go and you march in and you have your dinner and then you march into your dressing room and you start getting your stuff together for the show. And it's it's kind of like being in the army. It's like boom, 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 boom. Everything yeah. has a... And so we're doing the same venues this year with Foreigner 
And we got the same bus, the same bus driver. Uh, we're probably going to stay in the same hotels. I got friends in almost every city. So it's just great. I mean, I don't, I don't know what else to say, but I really look forward to it. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm chomping at the bit to get it going. And, uh, you know, Foreigner, are you kidding? The, the Foreigner had some of the best songs in the music business, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, thinking back to 81, you were touring with Journey at the time. They had Foreigner 4 out. I mean, it was a it was a sort of a golden age for, for rock in many ways. It was totally. I remember we had, uh, when I we toured in the early days with uh, with Journey, they had Escape Out, and they we were both on Columbia uh, Records, CBS, which is now Sony, at the same time, and you couldn't get a seat in any of those venues. And it was the same kind of deal. It was night after night, day after day. I mean, it was just, it was way back, but I remember how uh, I, I used to watch the reset at least half of it because then the guys would say, "Come on, we gotta go. We had to head to the next town." So I had to run back to the tour bus. But it's going to be the same with Foreigner because you know who doesn't know Foreigner songs? I mean, they got so many hits. I, I you know, like I said, I can't wait. Right. And uh, what next? I mean, are you just going to, I suppose, I mean, judging by how you talk about it, you're just going to do this for as long as you can, as long as it's still fun and as long as it still makes sense and the band's still happy together and all those things. Ben, it's what I do. You don't retire. There's no, someone told me yesterday, musicians, musicians don't retire. Well, you know, if I can't do it, I won't do it. Let's put it that way. And so far, so good. Well, Mike Reno, it's been a, an incredible, it's been a joy. Thanks so much for your time, and I appreciate it, and, and enjoy the tour. We look forward to seeing you this summer. Oh, thank you very much, Ben, and it's been a pleasure talking to you, as usual. You know, one of the things, we've still been talking about the submersible over the weekend, right? What happened to it, and, and just, you know, the, a lot of different issues around it. Um, there, we got some updates today. An international group of agencies, including the Trans Transportation Safety Board here at home, is investigating what made the submersible carrying those five implode, killing everyone on board. Salvage operations from the ocean floor, roughly 1,600 feet from the Titanic, are underway to determine the cause, says Chief Investigator, U.S. Coast Guard Captain Jason Neubauer. My primary goal is to prevent a similar occurrence by making the necessary recommendations to enhance the safety of the maritime domain worldwide. He says there will be a formal hearing with witnesses. The Coast Guard led the initial search, Rear Admiral John Mauger. The Coast Guard doesn't charge for search and rescue, nor do we associate a cost with human life. The international effort likely cost millions of dollars, according to experts. I'm Julie Walker. Right. Uh, there's that debate over the cost of rescue, but also there's just the whole idea of extreme tourism to begin with. You know, that the Titan sub, the idea of, you know, bolting yourself into this titanium pod and being dropped 4,000 meters down to witness what is essentially a graveyard at sea, the, this, the wreckage of the Titanic, that perhaps we've crossed the line a little bit. Because while you can do it, it's it's risky as well and expensive. So it's it's you know it's the purview of of the privileged few who can do it, and there are risks involved. Um, 
The adventure travel business was worth nearly $300 billion last year. It's projected to hit $1 trillion in a decade, that according to a recent report. So are we well enough aware of the risks? Have we stepped over the line when it comes to this kind of stuff? And what's driving the popularity of it? Dan Richards is CEO of the Global Rescue Company. He's the world's leading provider of medical security, evacuation, and travel risk management services to enterprises, governments, individuals, and more. And he joins me now. Dan, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. This this tragedy, and, and it is what it is, right, it, but certainly cast a spotlight on this idea of, of extreme tourism and, and its existence and its pleasures and its dangers as well. What did you, what, if, what has it brought to you? Well, I mean, this is obviously a tragedy for those involved. Human beings are sort of designed to push the envelope and to experience new things. The Titanic is, a, you know, an incredible sight to visit. Lots of people have been down there. It's certainly not inexpensive to get down there. And if you have the means... In the adventurous spirit, uh, I can understand why people would be interested in going. On the, by the same token, uh, you know this seems to me to be, and to some people, a senseless loss of life. Why do you need to go down thirteen thousand feet under the ocean to, you know, to visit uh, the wreck? So, you know, some people don't understand, and that you know there are a lot of uh, different types of things that people like to engage in, and you know some of them are. Are riskier than others, and there's an you know a natural human appetite I think for risk, and this you know particular activity caters to those who are more on the risk taking spectrum than not. It is a reminder of of just how much is out there, though. I mean, when looking at some of the numbers about, uh, and this would be a particular form of extreme tourism, this this particular incident. But when when one looks around the world, there seems to be a lot more people with means, uh, or at least the ability to save up to do it, going on what might be considered off the beaten path journeys. That certainly seems to be the case, and you know, I think. You know, people point to COVID for a whole host of reasons for, you know, behavioral changes in society. We've certainly seen a shift in our business for people who might have in the past gone and done something where they're going to a hotel. It's relatively sedate. Maybe they go to some museums or, you know, some other kinds of sightseeing. And the more adventurous activities weren't even on the radar. Maybe they were right right at the edge of the radar. And now... Uh, those activities are much more, I would say, likely to be engaged in by these people. When people were sort of stuck at home, you know, they they got outside, you know, in large numbers, larger numbers than ever seen before. And it started engaging in these, you know, some of them semi-adventurous activities, some of them very adventurous activities. And now they're, this is sort of, I think, a logical extension of now, now that they can travel, they're now, you know, deciding you know, hey, rather than going to Paris, maybe I'll get on that plane and go to Bhutan or, you know, someplace that I had never even heard of before and have some kind of bucket list experience that I can then, of course, take pictures of and, you know, post on my social media accounts. I mean, I was a foreign correspondent, so I've been to some unpleasant places over the years, you know, the Libyas and the Afghanistans and so on. I, I think when I look at this, I wonder whether uh, certainly some are have their eyes wide open when they head into things like this. But one gets the impression sometimes that that not everyone does. And, you know, booking a tour, you know, booking a cruise in the Mediterranean or booking a, you know, a cruise to Alaska versus going somewhere completely off the beaten path. I mean, you don't necessarily know exactly who it is you're entrusting yourself to. And I think that is part of, I mean, in this case, this was had a very particular set of circumstances, but just generally, you know, this has its risks, right? Absolutely. And, you know, you, you don't know necessarily the qualifications of your tour operators. 
you don't necessarily know how the vehicles that you'll be traveling in, whether it's, you know, a truck or a car or an airplane or a submersible, you don't necessarily know how well they've been maintained. And, uh, you know, there, there are risks certainly associated with that. So, and, you know, to your, your point, your earlier point about people not being necessarily well prepared, we have certainly seen that also. And I, you know, I think maybe some of it's COVID, but I think some of it's also driven by the internet where social media, yeah, social media, for sure. If your neighbor can go and climb to Everest base camp or to the summit and you see that guy every day and he doesn't maybe look like all that in a bag of chips, you think, well, maybe I can do that too, but maybe he actually is quite a bit more prepared, knowledgeable and, or, you know, fitter than you are. And you may not belong up there without doing a heck of a lot of, of training and frankly, practicing on some smaller peaks. And we see that we're at, we're very active in the high mountains. And we see that a lot where people's aspirations uh, exceed their abilities. And uh, that can be a dangerous combination. Yeah, the democratization of of adventure travel, of you know scaling peaks and so on. I mean, I see where the, the the motivation for those on the other side is because there's there is money to be made here, and certainly COVID meant that for a while there they weren't making any at all. So there is this idea of bouncing back, but it does you know when you when you I mean you're involved in rescues, so you know when it goes wrong. Has it been too wide open? Well, I mean that's the central question that we have to wrestle with, right? If you were to impose restrictions and say certain you need a certain there's a certain threshold that you need to meet who's setting those thresholds and is society better off frankly by putting those thresholds in place than they would be otherwise Uh, because there's a lot of people who may not be as well prepared as they should be and they go and you know they put their money on the barrel head and you know that's stimulating to the economy in a whole you know a whole host of ways just getting there and then once they're there and the hotels they stay in, the restaurants they eat in, and all the people that are employed in the you know travel and tourism industry, you know, a lot of times these people they actually go and they're perfectly fine, and you know they may not may or may not accomplish their objective. You know, could be summiting a mountain or going down to the Titanic or whatever. But also the penalty for failure is not often fatal, right? It's you just don't get to see the site or you don't get to partake in a particular component of the activity. Now, there certainly are activities where the penalty for failure can be fatal. And, uh, you know, we're, you know, frankly, one of the reasons that companies like Global Rescue exists is to to deal with those kinds of consequences. But it's very hard, I think, to litigate whether or not somebody is, you know, sort of, quote unquote, well enough prepared to go and engage in a particular activity. Dan Richards is CEO of the Global Rescue Companies. Uh, he's with us this half hour from New Hampshire. We're talking about some of the, we're, we're talking about adventure tourism, extreme tourism, which has come into the spotlight after the Titan tragedy last week, where you know people had paid up to a quarter million dollars each to be on that submersible to go down and see the Titanic, you know, some uh, 4,000 meters deep. It is was clearly something that wasn't without risks. I don't think, um, you know, the risk, what happened, of course, was was not necessarily, that that's going to be litigated elsewhere. Um, but Dan, when, when you look at some of this i mean clearly most most adventure tourism most even extreme adventure tourism ends well we don't hear about it because people go they go off to antarctica or the, they go to you know other parts of the world and they come back and they have their pictures and they have their stories to tell but, but what do you advise people who are thinking of hey, you know what i'm not going to go to cancun this year i'm going to go you know i'm going to go hike you know summit some some mountain what do you tell them to look out for the advice that we give constantly is just do your homework try and understand the kinds of dangers and um, risks that you're going to face. 
almost all the time people go and they engage in some of these risky or semi-risky activities. They have a great time. They may get some bumps and bruises. They, you know, they may, they may, they may suffer some ego damage and then they come home and they're fine, but that's not always the case. I mean, we, we see that, you know, interestingly and sadly in the Northeast, Mount Washington is a great example of that. And people will drive up and decide they want to, you know, conquer the highest mountain on the Eastern, you know, Northeastern seaboard. And, you know, they get out of their cars, it's 75 degrees, the sun is shining, it's beautiful outside. They're on a pair of, you know, shorts and tennis shoes and a t-shirt and they start climbing. And when they get up to altitude, all, all of a sudden the uh, the environment changes dramatically. They're above tree line, temperatures can drop, weather can change very quickly. And that's one of the reasons why Mount Washington kills more people in uh, in the lower 48 than any other uh, mountain. You know, it's that it's that proximity to population plus the rapidly changing weather conditions, it, you know, it doesn't look like Mount Everest. It's not a, a big gnarly looking mountain. It looks very approachable and people underestimate the dangers. And that, you know, I would say is probably the critical element where things end badly. People underestimating the environment that they're entering or underestimating the dangers associated with a particular activity. And that often goes along with, although not always, with overestimating their own capabilities. And that that can certainly be a deadly combination. And and just from from your own experience, I mean, I think, and we see it everywhere these days. When people get into trouble, they also put other people into trouble because someone has to come and find them and get them. And that in of itself is risky for those coming to the rescue. Yes, that is a a, a very good point. And we, you know, oftentimes are faced with making difficult decisions for people that we're tasked to rescue. And uh, it's one thing to to put yourself or or people at risk if you know the person is in a particular location, number one and number two, is living. It's another if you know and have confirmed that they're deceased. And we do, you know, sadly and tragically have situations where we know that people have passed away and you have grieving uh, and, and in shock next of kin who want you to recover the remains. And sometimes trying to recover those remains will put lives at risk. We draw the line there. We will not risk the lives of the living to recover the dead. And that's why, again, sometimes in the high mountains or, you know, in the case of the Titan submersible, you know, the very bottom of the sea, you're, you're we're just, we're, we're not going to send personnel down there uh, to recover remains when the likelihood is, is that uh, they'd be at high risk. The end here, the, you know, the final point at all of this is that there are a lot of options, a lot more options out there now to do things that uh, we didn't have the opportunity to do many years ago. But you really need to have your eyes wide open before you do any of it, right? Because as you know, I mean, it, you know, when you when you get caught out, if something goes wrong and you're in a place you don't know, in an environment you don't really understand and can't really, aren't really habituated to, uh, things can go wrong pretty quick. Very quickly. And, you know, the environments that you're entering, particularly if you travel far from home, have different infrastructure and resources than many of us in the United States and Canada are used to. Phone uh, help is just a phone call away in, in, in a lot of these, uh, you know, certainly in North America and in Western Europe. But a lot of the rest of the world, the world doesn't operate that way. And so if you're on safari in Africa and we deal with animal, you know, a number of animal attack scenarios every year in Africa, you know, the, you're looking at a, you know, a, a beautiful wild animal, a giraffe, for instance, and we've actually, you know, we've had a member who was attacked by a giraffe, all of really? a sudden, you have a gigantic animal bearing down on you. And something goes from a great, you know, photo opportunity to a life and death situation 
literally within the blink of an eye. So after that occurs, if you survive it, then what happens, right? The there there is in a lot of countries no nine one one that you call, and even if there is, oftentimes nobody shows up, or the people who do show up aren't prepared to deal with whatever your situation happens to be. So if you do happen to survive and you end up in a in a local clinic or hospital, trying to get stabilized and then transported to a place you can get care and ultimately to get home, it can be very challenging. Buyer beware. Uh, Dan Richards, thank you so much for your insight on this. Thanks so much for having me. I always love a cool science story, especially when a cool science story involves somewhere in Canada. So let me try to explain how this works. My guest will explain it better, but I'll try and tee it up so it all makes sense. Right now, we're living in the Holocene, and it's the name given to about the last 11,700 years of Earth's history, the time since the end of the last major ice age, right? But some out there have already decided that we're actually in a new epoch, that we've changed epochs from the Holocene to something called the Anthropocene. And the anthropo should give it away, like anthropology. It means human. It means we started a new epoch that began when human activity started to have a significant impact on the planet's climate and ecosystems. Essentially, our footprint began to change the planet we live on, a bit like an ice age, right? Um, but scientists are rigorous about this stuff. They don't want people just sort of declaring this. They want to test it. They want to get consensus on the meaning. So an international commission on this has decided to impose some rigor on the discussion a while back and figure out if and when this new human-driven epoch actually began. And that's where this very small but unique lake just outside of Toronto comes in. Crawford Lake is in the suburbs of Toronto. It's just north of Oakville, really, so you could actually get there just about any time you'd like if you were in the Toronto area. Um, but it may serve as the signpost that scientists need to figure out what that change looks like because they need some place that everyone can agree on, that they can measure these changes in a way that's consistent. And it actually has these one-of-a-kind characteristics that make it just so. Okay, so right now they're looking at about a dozen different places around the world that could uh, serve as these golden spikes, essentially a space or a place they can agree on where they'll be able to determine what has changed over time and whether or not it represents a change in epoch. Um, and Crawford Lake is one of them because it's so small and so deep that at the very bottom, nothing moves. It's perfectly preserved. It's like if you just dropped a layer of it, it just sits there. And so it's like tree rings. It's a perfect way to measure how the earth has changed over time over back several hundred years including you know the first nuclear test for instance which is actually kind of what they're uh what they've settled on as as one of the big examples of this anthropocene so to explain why this little lake is such a big deal and what it actually means uh micropaleontologist francine mccarthy's at, is working on this She's a professor of earth sciences at Brock University, and uh, she spent years studying Crawford Lake, and she joins me now. Francine, thank you. You're welcome. This is one of those great stories because it's it's like the, the hidden gem, the idea that there is this incredible thing sitting right on the outskirts of Toronto, an area that, that is now essentially a suburban community almost. Uh, but tell me a bit about what makes Crawford Lake so special and, and, and so valuable. Yeah, Crawford Lake is a sinkhole in the Niagara Escarpment. So it's a, a cave in rocks that are 420 million years old or so that were drastically affected by the last ice sheets. And the 
ceiling of the cave caved in, makes it a sinkhole. It makes it a very, very, very deep lake compared to its size. So it's about, it takes about 10, maybe 15 minutes to walk around the perimeter of the lake without huffing and puffing. And it's 24 meters deep. So like you know, 75 feet deep. So it's really, really de- deep for its size. And that means that the water's don't mix like the wind that stirs up the surface waters doesn't ever get to the bottom of the lake. So that means that the lake accumulates whatever falls through the water column pristinely undisturbed so that like tree rings, we can actually count annual layers. So we can tell you in any given year, like 1950, what happened in the atmosphere, what happened in the water column, what was going on, you know, in the watershed around the lake. So yeah, so it's the fact that it's got these annual layers that we call varves that accumulate because of the the shape of the lake and it's really, really great depth. And there it is sitting not far outside of, you know, bedroom communities all across uh, the GTA. There aren't many things like it around the world that can tell the story of, of time past and time recent uh, so effectively that can mirror us so well. When you look at it, I mean, your interest in this is, is not just, um, you know, in terms of its cultural history and 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 as a nice place to go for a walk, but it, it tells a story that we're really trying to tell these days. What is that? Yeah, so it, it turns out that in 2019, the Anthropocene Working Group that's a group of scientists, and not just scientists, but there are historians and, and even a lawyer, so social scientists and uh, people from the humanities, who have been thinking about the idea of designating the Anthropocene as a formal interval of geologic time. So in 2019, they actually voted almost unanimously to look for a place on the planet that would define, that would be like the the textbook case for what kinds of changes have happened to our planet in recent times that are due to the overwhelming pressure of lots of humans living a lifestyle that depends on uh, the combustion of fossil fuels and a lot of industrial activity. Around 1950, mid-20th century, great acceleration of human activity that the historians had coined that term that's what the Anthropocene Working Group decided to investigate whether the Earth itself had responded to that. So they started thinking about what kinds of places on the planet might hold that record, might hold, you know, record that change if it happened at all. So my colleague, Martin Head, who works five doors up the hall from me, he remembered knowing about Crawford Lake and its unique limnology, the unique conditions of the lake. And he stopped by my office to ask if I was willing to do the work, spearhead this effort to see if, in fact, the lake held that account, was able to tell that story of what happened in the mid-20th century. And five years later, here we are. Here we are. Uh, for listeners to know, I mean, we are we are technically currently in in the Holocene, right? Which is goes back nearly twelve thousand years since the last uh, major ice age. No, and we're, there's this idea that human activity, I guess the nuclear age in particular, means we've switched, we've changed. But this is this is scientific, and therefore always a matter of debate. Did I get that right? Absolutely. So that not everyone agrees that the 1950s or the the mid 20th century 
is a tipping point. I mean, we we certainly contend that and we're we're not alone. I think personally, the majority of Earth scientists are probably leaning toward agreeing that, that we've reached that tipping point due to primarily the combustion of fossil fuels. What we have done, uh, not just at Crawford Lake, but um, 11 other sites worked to see if their sites held this record, held this, uh, told this story. And so, yes, so in, in a year or so, there should be a decision by the Subcommission on Quaternary, the people who actually decide what goes on the timescale, whether the Holocene did in fact come to an end or are we still living in the Holocene? So that's not my decision. I'm not on that committee. But there are, I know that there are people who are uh, not convinced that there was a major change, a major tipping point that the earth behaves differently now than it did. And then there are other people who like the more informal use of the term Anthropocene to mean something more local, whatever in their particular field where they're working, the first incidence of human impact they record, they like to continue to refer to that as the Anthropocene. Whereas, of course, if we have our way and there is a new line on the timescale that says the Anthropocene started in, say, 1950, that will not be appropriate usage of the term. The proper, correct usage of the term, if in a year's time or so it is ratified, then the proper use would be mid-20th century onward based on this major tipping point due to the great acceleration of human industry. Francine, one of the things that we've really looked at, because I think at the beginning it was really about industrial activity and the industrial revolution, but it feels like now we've kind of settled on nuclear testing as kind of the era whereby we'll know, whereby we've defined the change of, of, of scene, so to speak. Yes. Yeah, so part of the work of the Anthropocene Working Group in the last year or two was to decide what the primary marker of all the things that are preserved in the sediments uh, and coral reefs and peat bogs and, you know, all of the different environments that we looked at, what thing would we used to define the Anthropocene? Because there are many things that changed in mid 20th century. What's the one major thing? And we came to the, um, I think, unanimous or almost unanimous decision that it is the fallout of radioactive material that was generated, that was created by humans. So it is an anthropogenic effect, a product of human industry well and it falls simultaneously around the world all over the place so it doesn't matter if you're looking at a lake an ocean a peat bog an ice sheet when you have an atomic bomb the fallout falls out literally of the atmosphere all over the world so it's global and it is synchronous It, it might be you know, a few months apart when you're closer to the point of um, detonation or further away, but but geologically speaking, a few months is nothing. So that's why we, the Anthropocene Working Group, decided to use these radionuclides, particularly plutonium-239, that doesn't occur in any appreciable quantities unless, you know, it's from nuclear weapons, as the marker. So the base of the Anthropocene, the beginning of what we hope will be a new epoch, is is going to be defined by 
the rapid increase in plutonium-239 in the type section, the place on the planet that will be where the Anthropocene would be defined. Again, if that subcommission on Quaternia accepts the proposal of the Anthropocene Working Group. And and this little lake outside of Toronto will be one of the spots that would be used to make this determination, right? That's what's so fascinating about it, about it, I guess, for a Canadian audience is that we have one of these golden spikes, they're called, one of the 12. Right. So it is, uh, it's, it's one of the top contenders. You'll find out on July 11th with the rest of the world whether it is the one that's moving forward. But when the announcement is made, there is going to be a proposal sent uh, presented to that next committee. And in addition to the proposed Golden Spike, the GSSP site, there will be two, three, maybe four auxiliary sites that also, in their own way, tell the same story. And so what we're looking at right now is finding, in addition to the best site, finding two, three, maybe four other good sites that are geographically distributed that are uh, in different environments, like not all lakes or not all oceans or not all coral reefs, you know, just a variety of depositional settings around the world that all say the same thing. And that, that, in our opinion, is really convincing of a truly global event. It will not be based on a single site, but on the argument will be made on the basis of several sites but there will, in the end, only be one golden spike, and it will be to the, if this commission ratifies it, it would be that that best of all of the sites that have been studied. I suppose all of this aside, what 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 is amazing as well about Crawford Lake is that regardless of whether this goes ahead, it still tells quite the story, no matter what, right? Absolutely. Uh, whether or not it is the golden spike, it has a tremendous story to tell about what humans have uh, done to the planet and uh, what we can do to improve things in the future. But it also, because it has a very strong imprint or, or imp history of Indigenous impact, if you will, of, uh, that's how we know the Indigenous people were there because their activities affected the lake. It actually started the varving, the annual layers happening. So we have a site that has human impact for 218 years around the middle of the last millennium. And then it has a global impact that records everything that's been happening to the planet since the middle of the 20th century. So initially back in the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries, the impact was very local. Like there was impact on Crawford Lake because there were hundreds of people here, but it wasn't all over the world. And so you had your local that then, I mean, much like the development of the planet, you had you had you had local impacts, and now you had global impacts that have become increasingly global over time, right? That's the, that's it. Wow, uh, Francie McCarthy, thanks so much. We look, we'll be watching on on July the 11th to see uh, to see what happens here. Okay, thanks very much. <laughs> 